It's okay, if you've got a Bible, would you please turn me to Exodus chapter 25. Uh, we're going through the life of uh, Moses, looking at the different events of his life. And uh, we're just going to read the first nine verses. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, uh, silver, uh, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twinned linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in the midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. We'll be doing another offering later. Please feel free to put the onyx and all that stuff in. We'll be coming around for your rings and jewellery and bling, okay? Uh, If you were actually going to outline uh, the whole of chapter 25, uh, we would divide it into four parts. You'll find at the beginning the introduction to the building of the tabernacle and all its furnishing. And then moving down uh, the chapter, you will find you get the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Then moving down a little bit further, you get instructions about the bread of the presence. And towards the end, you get some instructions about golden lampstands. And, uh, but what I'm going to do is concentrate on those first nine verses. And actually a verse that's not up there, verse 40, right at the end uh, of the chapter. And uh, what I'm going to try and do is look at spiritual principles in regard to worship, which we've been engaged in uh, this morning. So look at the spiritual uh, principles and use those verses uh, to try and draw them out. So I'd like to look at first the issue of willing worship. In verses 1 and 2, in the verses, uh, God commands Moses to raise a contribution for the building of the sanctuary. Uh, But if you notice verse 2, it says, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him. From every man whose heart moves him. The contribution, in other words, is to be voluntary. Voluntary. It is to be free. And these people have been slaves. They've been enslaved through generations in, in Egypt. So they don't understand or wouldn't have understood that they, this whole question about now do something voluntary. They've never done anything voluntary. Before. This would be the first. But actually, 
now comes the point where they should do something that they were made to do. To do something free and voluntary. They were once slaves of Pharaoh. Now they are servants of the living God. And because of that, they do things now differently. So this was going to be a teaching exercise for them. The gift was to be uh, to build a place where God could meet with them. But they were to do it from willing and free hearts. And I think this is a huge message for us because it speaks to us about our own willingness to worship the Lord. The Apostle Paul talks about that whole issue of willingness when he uh, writes to the Corinthians and, and elsewhere. And he talks to them particularly in the Corinthians about being willing to give. Are you willing to, to, to give? But I want to just concentrate for a few seconds on, on the whole issue of willing worship. Because we learn here that true worship is actually people who are willing to worship the Lord. That actually, that what we've done is that we, we look at those, those scriptures that we've sung about and we look at those songs and because of something that is in our hearts, something that has welled up, there is a willingness, a heartfelt response that what we want to do is respond to him. We want to respond to him. And I want to suggest to you that if we don't crack this, <laughs> at this point, before we go on to, to plant any churches or grow in anything, that what we will do is that we will develop a church whose worship is actually quite hollow. Quite hollow. Apparently, my wife tells me, because she did uh, a degree course, which is past just Saturday I'll do that again just in case they didn't I, my wife tells me apparently because she's done a degree course which she's just passed thank you I'm trying Cal I'm really trying that what you do these days is that you you are taught to pass the exam that's the way that you're taught apparently even in driving now you are taught to pass the, the test. And over the, over, the, over the years, this has been coming into education and different life, that, you, that what you do is that you're taught to pass the test. And uh, in different times throughout, throughout uh, we've known teachers. And it's interesting listening to those teachers talk now because they say sometimes, that particularly up into university and things like that, that students can't really afford to let the teacher go for a while. Just let them go on what, what the experience that they've got. Because actually the issue is that they can't afford to know all that experience because it may not come up in the test. And if it doesn't come up in the test, they don't want to know it. The teacher doesn't need to teach it. We just need to do the minimum required so that they can pass the test. Now I listen to this and I just think, that must be so disheartening. 
This person's got a scope of knowledge that they could impart to this person, but they're unable to teach it, and the person is only interested in that narrow part. And I think that God actually, using that example, is saying, no, that's not the way that we're to be. That's not how I want you to come into my courts with praise. I don't want you to come and do the minimum required so that you can do church. Do you have to go to church? No, you don't. Everybody leaves. Do you have to worship the Lord on a Sunday morning? No, you don't. Do you have to worship the Lord on a Sunday morning and endure that time where Nigel has called a prayer meeting and then he carries on worshipping? What is all that about? We've come to intercede. No, you don't have to do that either. Do you have to give to the church? No, no, you don't. Could the worship next week be one song and an extended coffee time? Yeah, it could be. Could the preacher next week, which is me, do just 10 minutes? I can be hurt, you know. I, I am but flesh and blood. Here's the truth of this. If that's what you want, if that's what you want, I'll do it. I'll do it. We love the pain. <laughs> do you have to serve? No. Do you have to go to a small group? No. But this is the issue. Such is what he has done for me. Such has been what Jesus has done on the cross. Such has been my delight in him. Such has been the transformation in this person that actually I want to. I want to. I don't want to come to church and not do those things because I have made a decision that I have come to bring my willing worship. I choose to do these things. I'm eager to do these things. I'm excited to do these things because I've come to the conclusion, and please come with me, that the first principle that we find here is worship is willing. I want to do it. I want to go for it from way... You know, sometimes I have this thing. But apparently, Martin Charlesworth... I'm not, sorry, Martin, you are now on the internet. Martin Charlesworth says to me, I, I don't like standing by you in meetings. <laughs> he says that I cause him physical harm. <laughs> I do not understand this because all I want to do is I just want to think, blow you, I'm going for it. I just want to think, I love God, and I've got this strange body, so I'm going to worship the Lord my way. And Charlesworth, if you happen to be sitting there, move, man. Don't tell me not to do this. 
I love him and I'm going to love him with everything they've got. Why? Because I choose to do it and blow to you. Blow to you. There are some people that I don't care fig what you think. I'm going to enjoy God because I've chosen to do it. I want to do this. Want to do it. Did you come willing to worship? Secondly, verses 3 to 7. Costly worship. We have a specification of the kinds of contributions that God wants. Prophecy, tongues, into no, gold. <laughs> Don't laugh, Chris, I'm coming to strip search you in a minute. Silver, <laughs> bronze, blue, purple, scarlet. <laughs> we will find you in Malta. We know you're going on holiday. All those sort of things. Dave Simpkins, from you, goat hair. Okay, all those sorts of stuff. Okay, Mac and Peter coming over there. We want fragrant oil for, for those sort of things. Uh, Onyx, Rolls Royces and Bentleys. All those sort of things. <laughs> it's, it's on the floor, Peter, yeah. It's in a tray, that sort of stuff. And you can see here that, that it is... It is extremely extravagant, the worship of God. You look at that and you think, that is a little bit over the top. A little bit over the top. Uh, come on, just... Uh, when was the last time you were a little bit over the top? Yeah? See, the Americans are just saying, yeah, the, the, come on. You know, li- this is a little bit over the top. And if you think about this, these people had recently been slaves. They had got no income. They'd had no income. There was not, they'd not been used to of anything of any quality. Then the Lord meets with them, and in his mercy, not only did they take the spoils from Egypt, but actually the Egyptians give it to them and say, here, take the best, go over there, let's get rid of them. So they are loaded with stuff that they have never had. Now, when, if you've ever had anything that you've never had before, you'd want to keep it, wouldn't you? And the Lord's saying here, God, no, I, you know, I want you to put it into me. I want you to give it to me. Now, I know that some of the resources would have been round them, like you know, the goats and all that sort of stuff. But by and large, the Lord is asking slaves to give lavishly and express their hearts by furnishing the place of worship. How did you furnish the place of worship this morning? Apparently, I, I, I used to do that in strict Baptist churches, put my hands in my pocket, and they used to say to me, it's not nice to worship the Lord with your hands in your pockets. <laughs> but do you know you can do that? You can do that. And isn't this just another principle of true worship? Doesn't that remind you? that worship actually is important of God. And what we give actually demonstrates what we care about. How much do I care about him? I care about him loads. Therefore, I'm willing to just give loads. He's a bucket full of grace. Here comes a bucket full of worship. It's that sort of thing. For God to ask former slaves to give lavishly to the construction of his tabernacle surely speaks to us 
of what we should be giving in regard to God in our, in our worship. It just shows us what we really care about. There's a second thing to learn. Worship is costly, and we can see that. Years and years later, when God had spared Jerusalem from the destroyer, from the plague, and from the angel of death, you'll remember that David decided that what he would do is set up an altar of thanksgiving outside Jerusalem, on the very spot that the angel of death had stopped his march towards Jerusalem. And the owner of the property was a Jebusite. They were the former occupants of Jerusalem. Said to David, I'll give you the site. I'll give it to you. You don't need to buy it from me. I'll give it you. And if you remember David's response, David's response was this. I will not offer sacrifice to the Lord that has cost me nothing. Wow. He realized that true worship means this morning it will have cost you. Cost you your feelings, cost you your body, cost you your heart, cost you as a person. Yeah? It will. That's why the Bible talks about a sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrifice of praise. If you want to gain in worship, then you have to lose to gain. God's grace in worship. Verse 8. Just the first sentence in verse 8. Let them make a sanctuary for me. Now Exodus chapter 26 will, will tell us about what this sanctuary will look like. In fact, uh, the, you know, it, we, it's sort of the whole chapter just goes through and constructs this for us. And I don't know what you think of when you think of sanctuary. Um, perhaps you think of something like St. Paul's Cathedral uh, in all its magnificence. Or perhaps uh, you are raving charismatic and think something like this. But somewhere between the two of those things is the idea of, of sanctuary. But if we can just put that aside for a little bit, let me just, uh, just try and get this into my mind. What is happening here is the Lord is asking them to build a tent for him. The Lord is asking them, the God of the universe, ask Israel to build a tent. And if you think about that, isn't that an incredible picture of God's wonderful grace. He asks us to do this for him. He said, would you do this for me? He, does, <laughs> he, he doesn't need them to do this. He created the heavens and earth. He could have thought, oh, I know what I'll do one morning is that while they're all sleeping, I'll, I'll create a tent. And I'll stack it out with some great stuff. And in the morning when they woke up, they'll go, good grief, there's a tent. And, and they'll say, well, we just sent somebody. My goodness, you should see what's in it. It's stacked full of priceless stuff. So off goes Moses and he trots over here and he says, Lord, he said, do you know there's a tent in the field? And the Lord said, yeah, he said, I did it for you. He said, no, I, I put it there so that you could work. He said, thanks, Lord. 
He said, what a great idea. Made a tent so we can come and worship you. But what did the Lord say? I want you to make a tent for me. I want you to do it. You could have done it. What these rebellious, sinful, moaning, complaining people that had come out of Egypt, you want, you want them to make you a tent? Yes, I want them to make a tent. I think it's extraordinary. I hope that you have got this. Please get this. The Lord is asking you to worship him. He doesn't need you to do that. He's God. But he's asked you, what a privilege, remember this hymn, to carry everything to God in prayer. Yeah? Him. What is it that the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, would invite the likes of you and I to come and worship him. What an extraordinary privilege. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. I want you to sing praise, to worship me, to come and do all that stuff for me. I just think, wow. You would want them to do that for me? John Piper often says some things that are so complicated that about three years later I understand them. And he says this, he said, Worship is an inward feeling of an outward action that reflects the worth of God. (laughs) So I'll I'll try and say... uh, what he was saying is, it, is actually worship is vain, it's empty, it's nothing, unless our hearts are moved by it. Yeah? Unless, unless something goes on in here. You know, I'm supposed to cry and laugh and experience joy and agony, all in those things as we worship the Lord, repentance, all those sort of things. And, I, you know, when you look at it, I think all the different things that you can find in the Psalms about worship and all that sort of they generally overlap. But, when you, but you can sort of sum them up, really, in two scripture verses. So you, haven't, you haven't got to find them unless they're on here. No, they're not. Um, uh, Psalm 63, verses 5 and 6. Don't turn to it. My soul will be satisfied as with the riches of food, with singing on my mouth, I will praise you. On my bed, I will remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Here's this thing. I just look at you and I get thrilled. I just look at you and think, come on. You know, I'm going to come back to that because the question is, why don't we get thrilled? We're going to answer that in a little bit. You know, I just look at you and I go, God, why heck? You know, whoa. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. Where can I go? From meeting with you. So imagine this. I'm over here and I'm in one of those moments. Okay? And then what happens is that I just go about normal life. 
And while I'm going around normal life, I'm thinking, well, it's great to be cleaning the cooker, but I'm beginning to think I need one of those moments again. And then, you know, I have to go and cut the lawn. I think, oh, it was great to cut the lawn. (laughs) But as soon as I'm, I'm out there. Because my soul is longing to be with you, to praise you, to worship you, to be taken up by you, to be thrilled by you, to be excited by you. I can't actually bear the moments that I'm not praising God. And you look at it and you think, well, no, not cool. Sorry, sorry, Phil. You just look at it and you think, well, I know that, but it isn't quite, is it? Let me read you. An amazingly complex quote from C.S. Lewis. And then what I'll do is I'll simplify it, okay? But it's amazing. Here we go. C.S. Lewis. It's from his sermon called The Weight of Glory. It's a great sermon, but it takes you about 13 years to understand it. Okay. I need my glasses, but I can't think where I put my glasses. But I'm, so I'm going to have to do this a little bit. So. It doesn't matter, Carl. If I get it wrong, they won't know because they won't have heard the... Wait, the <laughs> <laughs> Except somebody in the internet will say that. The third word you got wrong. It's because I haven't got my glasses. Okay. If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of virtues were, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what's happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves. As if abstinence... So I've got to put my finger down now. Abstinence... And not their happiness was the most important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but it's not about self-denial. It's not self-denial as an end to itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may, what? Follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find uh, if, we do so, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in the most modern minds the notion that the desire to our own good and earnest, earnestly to hope... Sorry. If there lurks in the most modern minds the notion that to desire for our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of, of it is a bad thing... I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and from the Stoics. And it's no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of the reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like ignorant child, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are too easily pleased. What does that mean? 
It means this, that what we do is that we value happiness or delight or joyment and that sort of stuff. And we take the resource of that and we apply it to worship. Which means that worship fails us. Let me try and do that a bit simply. We've settled for a house or a family or new friends or a good job or a widescreen television or for an iPod or iPhone or an occasional night out at a nice restaurant or a holiday. And we've just come accustomed to small, unexcited, short-lived, inadequate pressures that are not, in, not eternal. And what that does is that our experience of joy just gets shriveled and shriveled and shriveled. We've all had it. We go on holiday and we come back. We go, where did I go? What happened with that then? It's sort of, you know, well, I've got two weeks here and suddenly it's all gone. You think, blow me, where did all that go? And we don't realize that actually, because we live like that, we have therefore shriveled our own worship. That because of that mentality... But actually, there is something eternal, something fulfilling, something satisfying, something exciting, something stirring, something of great, intense feeling and passion that can come by spending time in the presence of God. If you will be willing and it will cost you to enter in. See, some people don't get to this Because of the first thing, they're not willing, they don't want to give, so they just think, well, rubbish, holiday's better. This is what the psalmist said in the bit before, he said, Oh God, you are my God, I earnestly seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you, in a dry land where there is no water. What is the psalmist saying? I don't know where God is, no, he's not. He's saying, he's saying this, Do you know the experience of God that can satisfy you in these conditions? That's what he's saying. The God that I know will satisfy my thirst, my body in a dry and weary land where there is no water. God's desire to dwell with his people in worship. The fourth... Uh, principle that we can get from the passage. God tells Moses the reason why he wants a tent. He wants a tent so that he can dwell amongst his people. Now, try and get this. He doesn't want a tent so that he can dwell in it. He wants a tent so that he can d- dwell with them. With them. So even Solomon would build a glorious, a much larger temple for the Lord. And even when Solomon does that, he knows that the God of heaven and earth is not going to just live in this temple. He's come to live with his people. See, nothing on earth can create a container for God. You can't put him in a box. You can't do that. No, because the Bible says the earth is his footstool. We can't box him in. The tent isn't the place that God will dwell. He will dwell amongst his people. And the idea of that is that as we worship, we will experience God amongst the people 
of God. And that's the point. I want you to worship me. And when you are worshiping me, you will know that God is amongst you. You will know it. I want to be beside you. I want to be uh, around you. I want you to know me. The point and the aim is that everyone, Christian, non-Christian, old, young, all that sort of stuff, will know that they are meeting with the living God. And if you notice, uh, you will notice uh, if you've read those chapters that uh, the, the building of the tent is right in the center of Israel with its tribes and 12 tribes. And it's just saying uh, tribe, uh, tri- sorry, 12 tribes <laughs> uh, surrounding it. It's just a picture of intimacy. Now, come on, English folk, Welsh folk, Scottish folk, one American. We need to not shy away from intimacy with our God. He wants to be intimate with us. And we need to be intimate with him. He he wants us to know that sense of closeness around us. He wants you and I to meet with him. He wants to speak to us. He wants us to listen to him. He wants to change us as we worship him. He wants us to feel him. When I first came into the charismatic movement, I was from a very reformed background. And there used to be phrases like this. And I used to be rebellious about it because I didn't like the phrase. And that can be what happened. I would stop worshipping God because of the phrase. And we can do that. And the phrase that came after this was that, uh, that my then pastor used to describe meetings as God being all over them. And I, I used to think, it sounds like a rash or something. It sounds like something you should scratch or itch or something like that. So, so I, you know, the heckles would go, because I'm from a reformed background. It's not how we describe the Lord. That sort of thing. But actually, it, it's a good phrase, isn't it? That God wants us to worship us. He wants us to be willing. He wants to cost. He wants us to understand the privileges that are there so that we can say, God was all over us. God was all over us. That we went from this place. And it was if, you remember Moses, you know, and they, he comes down from the mountain and the people look at him and they say, his face shone because he had been with the Lord. That's the idea. The idea is that we go from here and people go, they've been with the Lord. God was all over them. I love those things in the book of the Acts where it says, and they worship the Lord, and then it said, and the Lord said. And they worship the Lord, and it said, and the Lord did. Do you know, one of the things that I have to say, I was talking to, to Jenny and Bill uh, last night, and I've talked in the past to, to Phil about it, and we've cancelled tonight <laughs> because I'm an idiot. Okay. But, you know, one of the things that I actually really enjoy about our prayer meeting is, is the sense of the presence of the Lord as we worship God. And we don't do any, we haven't got wires. And sometimes the wires people say to me, you know, would you like us to, and I go, no. No wires. Just us meeting with the Lord. And I just, I have to say, I love it. I love it. 
Phil Harmon once said to me, he said, this is what he said, he said, I come to your prayer meetings, he said, but they do frighten me because he said, they are so unpredictable. <laughs> and I think, it's just the Lord. It's just the Lord all over it. You know, that's, that's the idea. Just, you know, we just do what, what God wants us to do. And now I've cancelled it. So there will be another one. Come Wednesday. Okay, worship is obedient. Verse 9, uh, we read this. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. This is the pattern of the tabernacle. And all its furniture, you shall make it. In other words, you just do it as I tell you to do it. Do worship how I tell you to do it. Now, if you look at verse 40, I'll... I'll, uh, I can read that. It says, and see to you that, that you make them after the pattern for them, which is, um, which, it's, I, need, I so need my glasses. Now, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. Got there. Moses is instructing them to do exactly as God showed them on the mountain. God's instructions. How do we do worship? How do we do it? We do it exactly as he tells us to do it. So are we going to worship God according to our instructions or according to his instructions? That's a big issue. Because now we come to the nail-biting thing that actually the Lord wants us to do that, and for us not to do that is to be disobedient. It's true. So when the Lord, the psalmist, tells us to sing, we're to sing. Sing out. When the psalmist tells us to shout, we don't mumble, we shout, because we're obedient people. The Lord says, shout to the Lord. So we shout. We don't do a sort of Nigel shouting and I'm being reverend. No, we shout. Why? Because we're instructed to do it. If I don't shout, I'm being disobedient. I need to then go in the little quiet room and say, I'm sorry, Lord, I didn't shout. That sort of thing. I've got to, be, I've got to follow. God said, I want you to worship me, but I want you to worship me my way, not yours. So sometimes you'll say, now I want you to be quiet. I want you to be still before me. So that you might know God. So we might, we sometimes are going to have to do that. Sometimes we need to get up and do a little bit of the old dancing. Why? Well, I'm not sure whether, the, you know, and I'm not quite a dancer and all that sort of stuff. I might be able to do a little bit of Abba or something like that. You know, occasionally when I've had a couple of glasses of wine at the odd wedding and particularly at the last song. But no, dancing's not for me in the church. What? does the Bible tell us to do? That's it. You don't hear people, do you? Beef, Yorkshire pudding, something. I am so sorry, Lord. I did not dance this morning. Did you? I just sat there. (laughs) Phil Armand played a bad note. It tells us, lift hands, lift hands, lift, lift hands, holy hands unto him. 
We've got a high enough ceiling. We've got, we've got to be obedient. It tells us to pray. It tells us to make music. It tells us to praise, worship, adore, love. The list goes and it even tells us to lie down. Wow. We've got to lie down. Kneel. I saw one kneeler this morning. Denzel, you're obedient to the Lord. You're obedient to the Lord. And Moses did all that the Lord commanded him. Have you done all that the Lord commanded you? Have I done all that the Lord commanded? It's just repeated time, time again. I'll say it again. God's worship should be done God's way, not mine. Not mine. I didn't invent it. He did. He said, I want you to worship. And by the way, you do it this way. Well, okay. I'll do it that way. Do you know the reformers talked about this? When they talked about the spiritual or the regulative principles of worship. That is, the content, the motivation, the aim of worship is to be determined by God and God alone, not by me. What does all that mean? What were the reformers talking about? Because, you know, we can do worship like almost as if it's something, you know, we go to the theatre. And sort of, you know, we watch the thing that goes on on the stage. We can become a detached spec- uh, uh, spectator rather than a priesthood of all believers involved in it. We can become like a literary or restaurant critic, you know, marking the worship with sort of stars of some sort. It was three stars this week, last week, four stars, the week before, just one star. We can become people who evaluate it rather than actually evaluating ourselves? Here's a good question. Am I evaluating the worship according to my own tastes or inclinations or am I evaluating it according to what God has asked me to do? Wow. You know, sometimes... To do these things is dead embarrassing. I know this. I've done the falling over, tripped over, all that sort of stuff, mortally wounded Martin Charlesworth, all that sort of stuff. But you know, in the end, the issue is this. Is my desire to be as obedient as I possibly can be. Finally, Let's apply this to the wonderful Saviour Jesus. John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and he dwelt amongst us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of our Father, full of grace. John tells us that the Word became flesh. And also that he dwelt amongst us. And it's the Greek word tabernacle. Literally, John writes, the Word tabernacled amongst us. And undoubtedly, uh, what John is doing is directing us back to these verses in Exodus where God dwelt amongst the Israelites in the tabernacle. And everything that we find in the tabernacle is symbolic of the reality of worship, but also the reality of Jesus Christ, who came as God's true tabernacle. So the tabernacle was given for Israel's wilderness journey. And so it was for Jesus. That Jesus would come amongst us. But this wouldn't be his true home. In fact, 
He actually says, didn't he, that he came as a pilgrim, that foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. In that true sense, Jesus came and tabernacled. It wasn't his home, but he made it his home for you and I. Came and lived in a permanent tent, sort of a non-permanent tent for you and for I. But it's the same that it's true of us. We're passing through. Are you, are you staying or passing through? Staying or passing through? When you look at the tabernacle, it was actually very humble in its outward appearance. Paled into comparison, really, with what would have been some of the grand buildings of Egypt. Can you imagine that from the slave's perspective? I want... I want you to build for me a tent. A what? A tent? What about a pyramid? Or a great... A tent? Are we sure? Tent? Now, we've just been building some great stuff here, but I want you to build me a tent. Why build a tent? Because I want, to sh- I want people to see the wonder of me in a tent. It doesn't sound right, does it? But when you see, the hymn writer says this, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. This is Jesus. What we see in the tabernacle is this sort of, this man that came but was fully God. What? Who's that? Oh, it's, just, it's just the brothers of this guy. Oh, it's just the carpenter's son. No, this is the God, of, the God of the universe. This is the one that spoke in Genesis and made these things to be. But it looks like a tent. Here he's fully God. Pink said this. He said, He came unattended by any imposing retinue of angels. To the unbelieving gaze of Israel, he had no form or comeliness. And when they beheld him, their unanointed eyes saw no beauty in him that they should desire him. Jesus, the one who came and tabernacled amongst us. Well, it just looks like it's goat hair on the inside. No, God. God. The tabernacle was the center of Israel's camp. Numbers uh, 2 verse 17 tells us that the tent of meeting uh, shall be set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. The various tribes of Israel camped all around the Israel because the Lord was at their center. And James Boyce says this in his commentary. This is highly significant reference to Jesus Christ because he is to be at the center of every Christian encampment. We've come together to him. He's the center of the camp. He's not off to the left, you know, on a little shelf and text on the wall. No, he's at the center. Jesus, be the center. Be at the center. That's what actually will enable you and I to worship him more freely that Jesus is at the center. And it sounds hard. Well, I just struggle with that. That's because you're at the center when Jesus is at the center. 
Well, that's because there's this and there's that and the other. No, just move those to the side, place Jesus, worship him. He's at the center. Jesus lives at the center of the camp. Sometimes we have to move him back. We have to say, no, okay, we just put him in another tent. He's just on the outside of the camp. I need to pull the pegs up and bring him back and camp him right in the middle. No, Jesus is at the center of the camp because it's his idea. That's how it worked. The tent was in the middle. So if you want success in worship, it's one of the things of success is actually bring him to the center. Bring him to the center. Be obedient. Not to you, but to, to him. Realize what a privilege that the God of heaven should want you to worship. But it's going to cost you. And you're going to have to be willing. Willing.